we're going to begin this morning by looking at uh, definition and scriptural evidence of God's goodness. I think that both of these are attributes that should be comforting to you, encouraging to you. We'll spend some time applying them. I don't think that you'll come across anything so shocking that you're, that you're like, oh, wow, my earth just, I mean, the world just changed. Uh, but it is good and re- refreshing. I particularly, I mean, really, they're, they're both very sweet. I, I do have a, uh, a fondness for God's patience. If you were sinful as me, you would too. Psalm 119, verse 68 says, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. And we're going to focus on the first part there. You are good and do good. Uh, we're going to look at two aspects of God's goodness. His essence and his actions. First, we're going to look at a definition of God's goodness. The goodness of God means, and this is by, by Wayne Grudem, that God is the final standard of good, and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. I'll read that again for those who are listening online. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good, and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. That's pretty heavy there. What God approves of is good because God approves of it. There's no, you know, outside, you know, a a court of humans that gets to stand over God and decide if God said it's good. Now, is it really good? Does it pass the goodness test? No, something is good simply because God approves of it. There's no higher standard of good than God himself. If there were a higher standard of good than God himself, it would be God. Right? So there's nothing else we can appeal to and say, was, what God did there in sending the flood, was that really good? Right? There's, 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 there's no one to ask. God is the determiner of what is good. Because God is good, what he approves of is consistent with his character. It is reflective of his character. All he does is good. Let's look a little bit at the essence of God's goodness. Luke 18, well, first I've, I, I've got some quotes here before we get into those verses. Uh, uh, Arthur Pink, and really I, I would say kind of like this is a, a small pink, a small pink. It is a small pink. It gets bigger books. But A.W. Pink, a uh, book on the attributes of God, is a fantastic book. Uh, like word for word, I think it's your single best small resource to a go-to. I mean, he can be a heavy guy, but it is rich. Uh, so so A.W. Pink says, there's such an absolute perfection in God's nature and being that nothing is wanting to it or defective in it, and nothing can be added to make it better. God is as good as he possibly could be. There's, 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 there's nothing to criticize about God. He is goodness. Uh, Pink quotes the Puritan Thomas Manton. God is essentially good. Not only good, but goodness itself. The creature's good is a super added quality. In God, it is his essence. Animals aren't good. I mean, they were good to the extent that God made them good. But in themselves, they don't have goodness. We as humans have goodness because God made us in his image. He gave us his goodness. God's goodness is essential to him. We can't take away one of his attributes. If you could, if you could take away his goodness, if you could somehow exalt yourself above God, criticize him, prove that he wasn't good, uh, you would destroy God. And that is exactly what people do with the uh, so-called problem of evil, is really trying to destroy God. Um, Let's see here. Luke 18, verse 19 says, And Jesus said to him, 
Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus wasn't saying that no one does good things. He's talking about the essence of God here. To call someone good, Jesus is like, do do you really know what you're saying? Only God, in essence, is good. The rest of us may do good things, except, of course, Jesus, who is God the Son. The rest of us may do good things, but we are not, in essence, good. 1 John 1, 5, I believe that when uh, Jesus talks about uh, I mean, when John talks about God being light, he's referring, at least in part, to his goodness. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If, if, if there is, I mean, I don't know what kind of percentages we could use with God. If there is one billionth of a percent or trillionth or, I don't know, what percentage. If there is any little bit of non-goodness in God, God would not be light. But he is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. You can read his word from front to end, and you will only find a record of 100% goodness. That is staggering for us. Why? Because our estimation of what's good is different from God's. Right? It is only when we submit to God, when we submit to him being good, then do we approve of everything that he does. God has essence of goodness. goodness. He also has actions of goodness, and this is what we're going to look at next. We read that Psalm 119 68. You are good and do good. Well, here we see the actions of God's goodness. He does good. Genesis 131, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Everything that God created was good. It was good, why? Not because we can look at it and say, yeah, it really was good. Well, that's true. It's good because God approved of it. He said it was good, so it was good. Uh, Psalm 107 begins, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 107 is a beautiful psalm. If you don't know it, uh, read it, enjoy it. It is a, a record of God's goodness to those who don't deserve it. The uh, systematic the- theologian Louis Burkhoff says that the goodness of God towards his creatures in general, this may be defined as that perfection of God which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with all his creatures. And I think this is maybe more what we think about when we just says that God is good. We may not be talking about his essence, but his actions. Um, so he is benevolent. Feinberg says, when we look at the biblical concept of divine goodness, one major area stands out. It is that God is concerned about the well-being of his creatures and does things to promote it. The overflow of God's goodness is the good of his creatures. You see this in Matthew 5, verses 44. Ooh, wow. Okay, there you go. Matthew 5, 44 to 45. It doesn't specifically say that God is good here, but this is a reflection of the kind of goodness that we talk about, that how even on God's enemies, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. That is God's goodness. Matthew 6, 26 describes God's goodness. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet our heavenly Father feeds them. He has a benevolence on his creatures. He does good to his creatures. Now, if you think about it, it's, it's, it's cool to think about Jesus reflecting upon God's goodness. Jesus would have gotten the extent of God's goodness more than any human ever would, right? Because he knew what goodness was, and he knew how sinful his creatures were. Imagine him waking up in the morning and just be blown away by by all the things that we can take for granted of God's goodness. He would know when his eyes first opened, wow, the earth is still here. 
God is good. There's sun today. God is good. I had breakfast. God is good. Because in his holiness, Jesus would understand how sinful the world is, and the world didn't deserve any of that. that uh, so, so it's just kind of interesting to think about how, uh, you know, when Jesus talks about the birds getting food, he knew God's goodness. Pink talks about God's goodness, notwithstanding all the evils which attend our fallen state, the balance of good greatly preponderates. You know, everything that God does is good. When you think about our evil condition, all the blessings that we have, and, and I know that we could spend hours listing them, right? I mean, from, from the breath to the clothes, the things that taste good, that we have food, um, there's no limit to the amount of time really we could spend thinking about how God is benevolent to his creatures. God is also the source of all goodness. We see this in James 1.17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. God doesn't vary. He does good all the time, 100% of the time. Everything that, every good thing given comes from God. Psalm 145 verse 9 describes that the Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. The Lord is good to all, and he's the source of all goodness. Uh, you have some other verses there in your notes, but we need to keep moving. I'm going to go ahead and skip through those. And we'll go on to, to a couple of points here. Distinguishing God's goodness from other attributes. So it is difficult to, 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 to um, well, and I'll read Wayne Grudem here. God's goodness is closely related to several other characteristics of his nature. Among them, love, mercy, patience, and grace. And systematic theologies will differ, like what is the chief virtue? Or sometimes they'll separate goodness from love. Or they'll say that mercy is, you know, God's grace to those who deserve pity. I mean, so God's goodness to those who deserve pity. Grace is God's goodness to those who deserve punishment. Grace is God's patience with those who have sinned against him. So all of these uh, attributes are very interwoven, and we don't need to, to, to work too hard to separate them. Uh, Frame says that the general category within which God's love, grace, mercy, pity, compassion, long-suffering, kindness, and other such expressions of his tender and fatherly care to be placed. They can all be placed under his goodness. We uh, talked a, 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 a few weeks back, Ben led us on the uh, attribute on God's freedom and his, his, his will on the problem of God's goodness. It, it was that message, right, Ben, on freedom and will? Yeah, and so if you want to spend more time there saying, wow, the world, there's lots of evil things happening. If God is all-powerful and God is all-good, how can these evil things be happening? So that would be, be a great message to look back to and to spend more time on that. Really, ultimately, though, I can spoil it. We don't get to determine what good is. God does. And God has a highest good, and that is his own glory. So he, good is what God approves of. Uh, it doesn't mean that evil doesn't happen. That suffering doesn't happen, but ultimately um, the problem of evil is not a problem with God's goodness. But I would encourage you to, to, to go back and listen to that message if you haven't already. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, we can also talk about, sp uh, about some specific displays of God's goodness. And really, we could go on forever about the displays of God's goodness. Uh, the fact that families exist, the fact that the sun just doesn't burn up the earth, 
that God has placed the earth orbiting around. I mean, there's so many uh, displays of God's goodness. Of course, the cross of Christ is a, 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 I mean, there's no place where God's goodness was more displayed than at that cross. Everything that God did at the cross of Christ is good. The wrath that God poured out on his son in the place of sinners is good. Everything that God did there, the, 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 the love that he had for sinners and saving them is good. The justice of God is good. The righteousness of God is good. The cross of Christ displays God's goodness. It is interesting to think about, and I don't know if I put this verse here. I didn't. Uh, that, uh, and, and, and uh, I'm going to read it. The new covenant uh, that God makes, first, it's a promise to, to, to make it with Israel, and then we as Christians have been grafted into it. The new covenant is particularly about displaying God's goodness. And I'm going to read these verses from Jeremiah 32, 39 to 42. And listen to how many times God uh, talk, talks about his goodness. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of the children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. God's new covenant promise in Jeremiah 32, 39 to 42 is all about God's goodness to us. When you proclaim the gospel, you are proclaiming God's goodness. We're going to look here at applying God's goodness. Oh, yeah. Okay, so we're going to look at some applications of God's goodness. God's good disposition towards us ensures that we can trust him. We can trust God because he is good. And 1 Peter 5, 7 doesn't, doesn't specifically talk about God's goodness, but it talks about his care, which is part of his goodness. We can cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for you. We could go on to Genesis 50, verse 20, as uh, um, Joseph explains God's goodness in his life. As for you, you meant evil against me, Joseph says to his brothers who had sold him into slavery. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. God's sovereignty works in tandem with his goodness. There is no competition within God's attributes. God's attributes are not conflicted. God is not conflicted. Everything that God's sovereignty does is out of his goodness. That's wild, right? We know that there have been evil, evil things that have happened. Those evil things are not good. But God's purpose in doing them is good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I mean, these are, are doctrines that we are just humbled by. These are things that we are blown away by. But God cannot do that which is not good. God cannot do that. God cannot decree that which is not good. He would not be God. So we can trust him. Psalm 84, 11. It's already up there. It's a sweet verse of God's goodness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If you are him, you have all the goodness at this moment that God has for you in Christ Jesus. There is no more goodness that God could give to you at this moment. Right? Right? Because everything he does is good. 
when he disciplines you. Hebrews 12, 10, he disciplines us for our good. Everything that God does is towards you, friend Christ Jesus, is the overflow of his goodness toward you. God's goodness is a generous goodness. He doesn't stifle his goodness. He doesn't throttle it. You know, I'd like to be really good to them. No, if he likes it, he does it, right? If it is good, it overflows. I mean, it's not like he has to enter into minute-by-minute decisions. And, And we talked about this with the series of, like, well, should I be good to them now or not? God is forever present. So humbling. And all this is about we can trust him. He doesn't withhold any good thing from us. Oh, and how, how displayed in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also freely with him give us all things? If he didn't, if, if he didn't hold back his son, he's not going to hold back other good things. He's generous. Um, we, we can also kind of flip this around, that those who trust in God experience God's goodness. And there, and there are some neat verses here. Psalm 31, verse 19. How great, and I, there you go. Psalm 31, 19. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. Those who take refuge in God, who fear God. And we talked about those in, in our fearing God series as being mutual concepts. That if we fear God, we run to him. And if we run to God, we do it because we fear him. It's a good, healthy fear that brings us to God. Those who take refuge in God are those who enjoy God's goodness. Those who trust in him experience God's goodness. Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Those are parallel ideas there. The person who tastes and sees that the Lord is good is the person who takes refuge in him. God's goodness, we go on to the next one, should also prompt us to make requests of God. Matthew 7, 11. If you then, being evil, if us, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? God in heaven is good. So go to him with your request. If we as fallen people even after regeneration, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more can we go to our Father to ask good gifts from Him? We could also apply God's goodness. God's goodness should not prompt us to, oh, God's goodness should prompt us to reflect and remember, to give thanks and praise Him. And Scripture is full of this. We could add literally hundreds of verses to this. Psalm 118, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. God's goodness should also prompt us to do good. We talked earlier about the fruit of the Spirit. If you have new life in Christ, if you have been united with Christ, you have God's goodness in you. You have the capacity to do good. Will we do only good? Not yet, but we will one day. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Wayne Grudem says that in imitation of this communicable, that sounds dangerous, I was worried, as Francis was saying, saying it earlier, it sounds like a disease you can catch. It just means those attributes of God that we share. You're going to be okay. In the imitation of this communicable attribute, we should ourselves do good. That is, we should do what God approves and thereby imitate the goodness of our Heavenly Father. Galatians 6.10 talks about us doing good to all people, especially to those who are the household of the faith, not limiting our goodness to believers only. Luke 6, 27 to 28, talks about uh, us doing good to our enemies. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. 
there are some other verses there you, you can look up about loving our enemies. And last, God's goodness should prompt us to repent. By last, I mean first half of last. But Romans 2.4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? When you see God's goodness to you, and specifically he's referring to those who have not yet repented of their sins. When you have all of God's, when, when you see the extent of his goodness, that should drive you to repentance. God has been this good to me after my offense to him. God's goodness should lead us to repentance. And that's the first half, the attribute of God's goodness. And feel free to come up to me afterwards if you have any questions. Next, we'll talk about uh, the definition and scriptural evidence of God's patience. Here's some, some, some synonyms that scripture uses for God's patience, like long-suffering and forbearance. The word translated from Hebrew into long-suffering, it's kind of an interesting word. It's long of nose. So some of you are patient people. Okay. But what does long, long of a nose mean? It's lost. It's, it, 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 it may not have had this etymology by the time that the Bible was written. But originally, when someone's angry, right, and some of you more than others, your nose becomes red and burns, right? You're like, you can tell when someone's angry because their face gets red. At least maybe some of us have pillar complexion. But when God is compassionate, his nose becomes long. Not because he tells lies like, like Pinocchio. When he's compassionate, his nose becomes long. So long, in fact, that it would take forever to burn, com- to burn com- com- completely. So that's the idea there between God being long of nose. He's long-suffering. He is patient with us. Kind of an interesting word picture. Grudem describes God's patience as God's goodness when it is used, and again, this is a reflection of God's goodness, when it is used for the benefit of specific classes of people. For the benefit of specific classes of people. So whether that's patience with sinners, patience with saints, patience with Israel in the wilderness. Uh, Louis Burkhoff writes, patience is that aspect of the goodness or love of God in virtue of which he bears with the with the forward and evil in spite of their continued disobedience. And that really is uh, incredible. We could spend so much uh, time thinking about this, God's patience to us before we were saved. Right? I mean, I, I mean, our sin was against him. It was offensive to him. He hated it. He could have destroyed us, but he was patient, waiting for us to come to repentance. His patience with this world now which he could destroy, but he's patient. And we'll see uh, 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 how scripture points to that patience. Uh, A.W. Pink describes the patience of God is that excellency which causes him to sustain great injuries without immediately avenging himself. We know that judgment is coming, that God will pour out wrath, but he just doesn't lash out. It could be instantaneous, but he's patient. His long-suffering, Pink says, is his power of self-restraint kind of an a, a, a interesting idea. His long-suffering is his power of self-restraint. Judgment is coming, but he's patient. He, and we'll see why he is. There are m- many verses that support God's patience. We have seen Exodus 34, 6, how God reveals himself to Moses. This is particularly pointed after, uh, while Moses is uh, on Sinai getting the law, the people of Israel are down below making a golden calf, and this is how God reveals himself. 
The Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. In Psalm 86, verse 15, we'll, we'll look at that numbers verse later. Psalm 86, 15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. In now, we're going to look here, and I've kind of struggled with, with, with how to phrase this. God is patient, and I thought about it as the intention of God's patience, that God has a purpose behind his patience. We, we, we know that his patience is limited. We know that his patience is finite. Eventually, he will punish sinners. Eventually, he will transform his saints. Well, they will no longer need his patience. So what is, what, what is this, this purpose in the grand scheme of things? Themes, uh, things of God's patience. God's patience gives sinners opportunity to repent. Joel 2, verses 12 through 13, God says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. That was God's call to Israel to repent. But really, the same call could be made today to a Gentile world, right? Return to God with all your heart. Repent with fasting, weeping, and mourning. God is patient. He's long-suffering. He hasn't destroyed you yet. There's still time. 1 Peter 3.20 describes how when the patience of God kept waiting till the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. The patience of God kept waiting. What was he waiting for? Well, Noah, as we see in 2 Peter 2, 5, was a preacher of righteousness. He was proclaiming that there was rescue to those who repented. God patiently waited while the ark was, was being built. We already looked at Romans 2, 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That's what this time of patience for is. Now is a time of repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise. He's talking about his return there. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter is uh, responding to people who are complaining about, well, why hasn't Jesus come back, come back yet? Everyone's talking about Jesus coming back. He isn't coming back yet. And like That's because he's patient. He, he's waiting for people to repent. It's not because he's too powerless or because he doesn't care. He's waiting. He's giving you more time. This is the part of the reason why we're here on earth now. It's his patience. Now is the day of salvation. We have a good news to tell. 2 Peter 3, verses 14 to 15 says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things for the return of Christ, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. He waited for us to get saved. Isn't that amazing? Christ could have come back. He, he, he could have wrapped this whole thing up. But he, he waited for you to repent. You are part of his eternal plan. And there are, why has he not come back yet? Because there are others who are going to repent. So that's part of, I think, God's purpose in his patience. He's waiting for his creatures to repent. God's also patient. Uh, God's patience with those he saves encourages others regarding his grace. And this is, I don't know if the, there's sweeter verses in all scripture than 1 Timothy. Yes, there are. I always say that. But 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16, I don't know if there are. It's a trust. This, this, is, this is really good. 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 to 16. It is a trustworthy statement 
deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul says, I was really bad. I can't imagine a worse sinner than myself. I was killing Christians and thought I was righteous. I, I, was, I was casting votes for them to be killed. But then, why? Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. That's why God saved Paul. So that you can answer to yourself, can God save me? And the answer is, yes, he can. He saved Paul. And I feel the same way. He had patience with me. He saved me for you. And really for those that we share the gospel with. If he can save me, he can save you. I'm a display of God's patience. And you, when you are saved, are a display of God's patience. There's still time to repent. I love that verse. And that's part of God's patience. It's an encouragement for others to respond to his grace. Here's another one. God's patience with those he will punish reveals his glory. Deep stuff here, Romans 9, verses 22 to 23. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? This is a sobering aspect of God's patience. He patiently puts up with those who he's not going to save, with those who will be destroyed, and why he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for his glory. God's patience with those he isn't going to save is so that we appreciate his patience for those who he did save. So that we appreciate his mercy. A.W. Pink says, were God to immediately break these reprobate vessels into pieces, his power of self-control would not so eminently appear. By bearing with their wickedness and forbearing punishment so long, the power of his patience is gloriously demonstrated. And we, we, we get a bit of this now. We are sad about the state of our world, the wickedness that is happening, the injustice. We are saddened by it. And we are eager for Christ to come back. But when we get to heaven, our, our, our minds are going to really get how patient he was with us. When we get his holiness in his full display, we're going to be like, how did he put up with me for one second? We're going to worship his, him for his patience forever. We see another purpose of his patience, another intention. God's patience is for the accomplishing of his sovereign plan. This is really interesting. It's too small. But um, in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, this is just really interesting. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, so, 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 so describing the judgments being outpoured in the book of Revelation, I saw underneath the altar of heaven the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. So he sees martyrs and because of the testimony which they maintained. And these martyrs cried out with a loud voice in verse 10, Revelation 6, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? God, when is your patience going to be done? We were just killed for you. When is judgment coming, the martyrs say? Verse 11, And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who were to be killed even as they had been, would be completed also. It's a little dark, right? You know, why is God patient? Because there's more people to be martyred. 
But you put that in the bigger picture. God is patient because he is accomplishing a great big plan, right? God is sovereign over human history. God, God is patient until all of everything he's decreed for human history is accomplished before the eternal state. We would uh, could spend forever, again, talking about examples of, of, of God's patience. I mean, God was patient in the garden after Adam and Eve first sinned. He just didn't, just didn't destroy them then. Can you imagine God's patience before the flood as, 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 as his heart was grieved with the wickedness that was going on? God's patience with Israel in the desert, not destroying them and going on with a new people. After he's like, Moses, I'm going to take, take you and make, make you a new people. And Moses is like, no, you're, 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 you're going to be shamed if you do that. But God was patient. He was patient with them 40 years in, in the wilderness as they continued to rebel. God's patience with Israel before the exile. And God's patience with the world now. I'm going to read a, a, a longer quote from A.W. A. Pink on page 64 here. An attribute to God. It says, How wondrous is God's patience with the world today. On every side, people are sinning with a high hand intentionally. The divine law is trampled underfoot and God himself openly despised. It is truly amazing that he does not instantly strike dead those who so brazenly defy him. Why does he not suddenly cut off the haughty infidel and blatant blasphemer as he did Ananias and Sapphira? Why does he not cause the earth to open its mouth and devour the persecutors of his people so that like Dathan and, and Abiram, they shall go down alive into the pit? Those are people who rebelled against Moses ground, open up, swallow them. Like the Trail of Jedi. What of apostate Christendom, where every possible form of sin is now tolerated and practiced under cover of the holy name of Christ? Why does not the righteous wrath of heaven make an end of such abominations? Only one answer is possible, but because God bears with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Incredible, right? The amount of wickedness that goes on in the world today, and God just doesn't end it because he's patient, and he's patient so that we will forever know how patient he was and how little we deserved his mercy. Patience also gives us time to call people to repent, right? And that's how we can apply God's patience. The application of God's patience is God's patience is finite. It will come to an end. God is good. Ezekiel 18.32, he says, I've got no pleasure in the death of, of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. Nahum 1 verses 2 through 3 describes God. This is written to, to uh, Israel, but it's still true. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait. Okay, that's kind of an about face. Like, where are you going? The Lord, he just said he's avenging and wrathful. But now in verse 2, 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Then it goes right back. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He's saying, I'm patient. I'm long-suffering. Judgment's coming, so repent. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not know when his patience comes to an end. Repent now. And we've already talked about that with Romans 2.4, that now is the uh, don't think lightly of God's patience. Another application of God's patience, God is patient, so we ought to plead with God for grace upon others. And this is exactly how Moses responds to God's patience. 
In Numbers 14, 18, this is after Israel says, ah, promised land, it's kind of scary, can we go back to Egypt? They've got leeks and onions, I kind of miss being a slave, it was easier back then. And God's like, I'm going to destroy him. Now, of course, God is using that to teach Moses about himself and to work through to answer Moses' prayer. But Moses makes his case to God based upon what God had previously revealed about himself. So Moses, Numbers 14, 18, tells back to God, you told me the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He, he, he talks back to God, God's own revelation of himself. And I think that this is great for us as we are appealing with God to save our loved ones who don't know him. Lord, you are slow to anger. Please have mercy on them. We don't know who God is going to save. We don't know if our loved ones are part of his elect. But we can plead to him based on his mercy that God would have grace upon them. Another application is that God is patient with us, so we ought to be patient with one another. I think this one goes without saying, right? The better we understand God's patience towards us, the more patient we will be with one another. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. There's many verses about our call to be patient. Uh, we already mentioned the fruit of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 talks about love being patient. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. That's that other word, gentleness there. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And that really ties in well with what we've been talking about in Philippians 4, 2 through 5. We're going to need to be patient with one another if we're going to be unified. If we're going to have gentleness with one another. Let's see here. Let me skip, skip ahead to God is patient with his enemies. So we ought to be patient with everyone. We should not just be patient with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be patient with everyone. And this verse is not specifically mention God's patience, but it is a display of his patience. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons. You want to be like God, be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And part of that perfection, part of being like our Heavenly Father, is being patient with our enemies. Brothers and sisters, we need to be patient in our political conversations on Facebook, right? We need to be patient with our enemies. I'm just going to leave that there. Exodus 14, 16 to 17 says, in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heavens and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. That's what God has been doing around the whole earth. For thousands of years, patient with his creatures, continuing to give them goodness and kindness and not, and not automatically destroying them. None of us would be alive if God weren't patient. Our ancestors would have been destroyed thousands of years ago. But God had a plan that because in his patience with us, that we who have put our faith in his son would be worshipers forever of him. I look forward to that. 
to worship him. And, and I do think we're going to get so much more of an understanding of his patience when we are there in heaven to see the extent of his holiness.